I want to encourage you. My goal this morning is uh, by the time I've left, uh, you'll be that much happier. But uh, I want us to leave uh, excited about something that I'm finding is shrouded in unnecessary tension, and that is this whole issue of leadership. It's incredible. Ever I go, I'm finding a craziness around leadership. There's almost a sense that um, it's, leadership is now the illegitimate, uh, weird second cousin. And it's, it's funny how none of these philosophies are applied in the marketplace. My theory is this. Bring your sexy theory about leadership, and we'll put it in the one filter that will determine whether it will work. That's the family. And I'm discovering there's a, a subtle push to what I call leaderlessness. And um, I want to show you how most of that I think is just over-response, over-correction, and most of it completely unnecessary um, and even possibly a tool of the devil to stop the, the forward movement of God. And so I always say, well, you know, bring your little sexy theory, which is advocating leaderlessness. We're all leaders. We don't need leaders, you know. And then let's, let's go and apply it at home. That's your boy. What's his name? Adam. How old is Adam? Two and a half. Okay, Adam, from today, you can decide what we will eat, what time we'll go to bed. If you want ice cream, we'll have ice cream. Do you like spaghetti? Do you like spinach? Oh, no. Go like that. All right? We'll, we'll let the kid decide when he wants to go to bed. I mean, I was dealing with some Christian business guys, and they were advocating leadlessness in the church, and I said, you know, really, come now, come now. Get your tea, lady. Now, all work is noble, so making tea is not ignoble. It's good work. You can get it. Um, let's get the tea lady, and let the tea lady be the CEO of your board meeting. Let her manage the board meeting. And you go make the tea. Said, no, no, that's different. I said, no, 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 no. If you apply the same theory in the marketplace and the family, your marketplace, your company would be completely insolvent, and your family would be chaotic. Suddenly we get to the church, and I'm finding, I'm having to defend leadership as though it's some strange Martian disease that's settled on the church. Um, I find I'm having to uh, support leaders. I'm having to uh, beat the drum for the legitimacy of leadership to exist. Part of that is our post-postmodern post, post, post culture in which we find ourselves, where no one tells me what to do. No one. The other day, after 25 years of marriage, Jan, when we go driving, Jan loves to tell me how to park, where to park. I don't know what it is. It's just a thing. I'm sure none of your wives do that, eh? So Jan says, Pete, there's a parking. I said, yeah, there is. There's one here, too, and I park over here. So, so she says to me, how come you never park where I suggest? So I said, no, babe's coming out. I stopped. I said, babe, officially, after 25 years of marriage, I want you to know categorically, an old word we used to use in the old government, sorry. Categorically, out, fear of contradiction. I want you to know that I do not need you to help me park the car. They went over like a lead balloon, you can imagine. It wasn't great. We don't want to be told what to do. And um, so I'm finding there, there, there are some unnecessary things that are happening in the local church, and um, we might not enjoy the fruit of that in this six months or in a year, but we will pay a price. 
for a culture of leaderlessness, it's not the leaderless, it's not the leadership that is the issue, it's the nature of the leadership that gets expressed that is the issue. And uh, if you want a gift as a leader, then and you don't have it, you need to go get it, and you want to pray for a gift, I think you need to pray for the gift of discernment. Because I'm a charismatic. You're charismatic. The charismatic movement is so full of wonk. Wonk is the noun of the adjective wonky. We are so full of wonk. We are so full of strange ideas. Um, and there's some fundamentals that if we apply them, we'd grow. And everywhere I go, uh, generally, I'm given reasons why the church isn't growing. And it's about the fact that there are ley lines that run parallel through the center of our town, where the Hindus are here, the Mormons are here, uh, the JWs are here, every culture's here. Somebody uh, killed 14,000 Scots here 300 years ago, and so we can't do home groups. I was told that once in Scotland. Um, so we need to go in a high place and blow a horn, blow the shofar. In our church, I say, if you blow the shofar, I'm going to put it so shofar you'll never blow it again. Um, <laughs> I had a lady who said, when you do this and dance, I hope there aren't any dance queens here. Um, anyway, when you do this in a dance, a corresponding action happens in heaven, and I went, what? Where? Where is that? You know? I go like this, and the devil goes, ooh. No, there's a lot of wonk in the charismatic movement. A lot of unsubstantiated hunches that masquerade as prophetic words. We don't, we don't test the words anymore. A few years ago, I had a, a Malagasy veteran um, Pentecostal preacher come to, to our town in Maritzburg. And um, you know, we used to live there years ago, 10 years ago. And so as was our custom, when people came through, we would turn the prayer meeting over to them and we had prophetic words. And so the prophetic word was flowing. I remember once having to get up and say, guys, okay, I love the prophetic word, please. I'm banning rainbows, waterfalls. <laughs> Anything with water is banned. Find another metaphor. So they, were th- they thought I'd, I'd back them. And so this guy came along, and there was prophetic words flowing and everything. And so I was going to take the meeting in another direction. So he stopped me and said, uh, my brother, are we going to weigh the prophecy? It was such a rebuke, because eh? I'd stopped weighing prophecy. In fact, it's a long story, but even the, 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 the trauma in the diaspora, the dispersal of NCMI, the human collateral really happened around the inability to properly waste ray prophecy. Because that is a prophetic word that sent us forth. It's incredible, the unnecessary levels of angst and, and confusion. Because we're not actually well-schooled in the prophetic and how to, how to measure the prophetic. So you're getting all kinds of... So suddenly prophetic words have equal weight with Scripture. Now, I know I sound like a Baptist, but hang in there with me. And, and suddenly we, we are throwing out all kinds of a time-proven methodology in the name of some, kind, some unsubstantiated feeling, in the name of prophecy, and um, all kinds of challenges. So I want to just look at a couple of unnecessary problems. And the first one for me, I've sort of covered some of this already, is unnecessary philosophical tinkering. See, this, this is part of the malady of being a prophetic people, because we're always living in the future. We're so future-focused, we're useless in the present. In fact, we are probably four prophecies ahead of our current level of obedience. Did you hear that? We're probably four prophecies ahead of our current, <laughs> Ed thinks four is a generous <laughs> or conservative term. 
So we're always looking for, what's the new word? Guys, can you give me a word? I said, yes. That's the word. <laughs> you know, get a new word. What's God saying? And the prophetic people are agitating the church. What's the new thing God's saying? And I don't, I don't know whether God's saying that much new right now. He's kind of saying, well, Pete, do some of the old stuff, and then we'll talk about the new stuff. Now, this is relentless. I think it's some almost, uh, those of you who don't know me, you'll think, feel this guy's opinionated. You have no idea. So just hang in there. <laughs> um, I think, I think there are, some of us, uh, historically, we, we, we just, uh, what's the word for it? We're just adolescent. We're so childish in our search for the new thing. Give me the new thing. What's the new word? What's the new day? What's God saying? And um, the insecurity, if you're, kind of, if you're one of the elders, is enormous. You have to hide it. And that's leadership is the capacity to hide your terror. And so we smile and wave, like Malagasy, you know, whatever the movie. Um, this feeling that I must come up with something new. You know, what's the new thing? And down the road, this is happening. And have you seen this website? And this bloke, and it's incredible. You know, and blogging has made experts of us all. That's incredible. This church is doing that, and we shouldn't. I say, well, why should we? God's not doing that with us. And you have to draw on enormous courage to, to lead when I talk about the directional flow of the local church because of this philosophical tinkering. And because many of us, historically, probably were more schooled in ecclesiology and missiology and apostolicity, some of our theologies are very thin. And even some of the, the, the love of new ideas, if we had church history running in our veins, we'd know there is no such thing as new ideas. It's old heresy with new packaging. So there's a thing that's in the name of, of, of grace is if you push it to its logical end, is really advocating sinner's perfectionism. This is old as Spurgeon. And suddenly it's the new grace teaching, this new thing. And so we're, we're our own worst enemies, wanting this new thing. And uh, so because we, many of us lack a theological rooting, we're very vulnerable to the winds. That's why Paul says, every wind of doctrine that blows, you know. So there's a constant metaphor, a call to firmness and be rooted and, and stand firm then. And Paul says, um, now we really live because you're standing firm. This uh, why, would, why would there need to be this, this, um, this kind of repeated um, mantra of, to, to firmness? It's because God knows how fickle we are and how, how easy distracted we are. It's like we are spiritually ADD. You know, we need to be on some kind of spiritual ritalin just to calm us. And, and so I love the um, vineyard's self-history um, uh, called the quest for the radical middle. That's what I'm after. I'm after the radical middle. The word middle is not widely um, prized in our ranks because it sounds boring, middle, it's average. And we want to be out there on the edge, the cutting edge, you know. But it's a radical middle where we hold this theological, word, theological the theology and the word of God in tension and, and the prophetic, prophetic serves us. These things, are, these things take courage. It's enormously, enormously dangerous to lead in this generation. So I listen to guys talking and, I, and a lot of my friends and people and they're tinkering, going crazy, and I think, give me the scripture. You know, we grew up chapter and verse, chapter and verse. Someone would say something would say verse, chapter and verse. We should get back to some of that. Show me in the Bible. Where is it, where is it in, this, in, the, in the text? Um, so because of this, this paucity and this <coughs> lack of theology, we're very vulnerable to all kinds of subjective experiences. And then we're at the mercy of the guy with the biggest mouth or the girl with the biggest mouth. 
over the zhuzhiest machinery and the loudest voice. Uh, we're at their mercy. Uh, and, and then when you um, say, sorry, I, I don't quite get that, then there are all kinds of dismissals of you because you're whatever, fill in the blank. So this philosophical tinkering is worrying me, and I think we're going to be do the equivalent of picking at a, at a, at a thread in a garment, and, at, and the final result of all our picking will be a garment completely unraveled. Particularly around leadership. You have only got where you've got because someone took you there. This is how God set it up. I don't know why. I mean, I, I wouldn't follow me if I was me. Based on what I know about me, you shouldn't even listen to me. Artie Kendall, a great friend of ours, he said, if you knew what I know about myself, you would never follow me. I said, oh, Artie, give us hope. They asked Artie, what is he worried about the most? He said, I'm worried that I may, be, I may fail morally. I said, RT, you 76 for crying out loud. Give me hope. <laughs> we thought all that died away. Oh, no, Peter. Oh, no, he says to me. It's incredible that people would even follow us. And, and oh, why didn't God just download Michael the Archangel? Or, or like the, the poor guy who confused everybody for a while, Todd, Todd Bentley, who said he, had, he was in heaven and the angels were putting boxes in him. And he said, what are these boxes? And the angel said, it's character. Because we don't have, you, you, you usher in the end time revival. We, we don't have 30 years to wait, time to waste to put the character in you. You know, and because we're so stupid, charismatic, we're oh, really? We should have gone, I want to use a strong word, but you don't, some of you don't know me yet. <laughs> I want to say, manure what I want to say. Well, it's not really what I want to say. So I want you to say, excuse me, it's junk. Not this naive, oh, maybe, it's not quite, it's not grieve the Spirit. No, 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 stop being stupid. Because in our, in our desire not to grieve the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit. Because we're in stupid areas. So this philosophical tinkering, you end up with nothing, and a leaderless culture is not to be um, uh, sought after. You will pay a price. If we don't lead these little blighters, they will grow up to hate God, hate the church, and damage themselves, and have all kinds of trauma that will ruin your, your parenting in your, in your late years. And that sins of the forefathers might not necessarily be because your dad, your dad was a Freemason. Jeez, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a Viking. Can you imagine what kind of things work in my life? I mean, I, you don't even know what your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was doing. So... You know, let's not get stupid here. I think sins of the forefathers are behavioral traits we teach our children. So if you, if you are not leading in the home, then you're going to teach, teach your, 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 your son that he's not supposed to lead. Um, you're going to be just a weak man. I've just been in London, so I'm fired up. I did a wild man conference there, and, and uh, my theme was um, uh, decisive masculinity in an age of ambiguity. Everywhere we, everywhere we go, all over the world, we've got weak, wussy men who are about as useful as a wet noodle and tornado, married to these strong, grotty old, grumpy old people. <laughs> and, and these strong, dominant, controlling women married to these little Weasley men are producing Weasley sons who are going to marry strong, dominant women to mother them. And that's, for me, that's the sins of the forefathers visited on the next generation. Leaderlessness is not in the Bible. Nowhere is it advocated. And if you tinker philosophically with the thing, you'll end up with nothing.
The other thing that I find is unnecessary is, is this unnecessary ambiguity. Do we need leaders? What does it look like? How far do we lead? When am I, I controlling you? When, I, when am I just leading with strength? We had a lady who, who stalked a man in her home group. Married man, both married. Stalked this guy, guy weaker than anything, falls for her, have an affair. She falls pregnant with this guy's kid. That's a mess in a church. Can you imagine? And, uh, and so our elders got hold of her and said, can, can, we, um, can we talk about it? And she said, I'll talk about it. Just don't put your legalism on me. Ah, the cheap exits. I want to put something on you. It's like both hands. It's amazing the, the, the extent we go to, to live what we, the way we want to live. And sometimes this ambiguity around leadership is just a smokescreen and it just suits our purpose. I'm also concerned, thirdly, about unnecessary self-consciousness. See, it, it's difficult to be a leader, leader because you are an earthen vessel and you never quite get rid of your, well, your earthiness. You, you're not Michael the Archangel. So you're a work in progress. Battery's not included. Needs some assembly. You, you're trying to work with your sanctification process. You're trying to deal with your own sin. And can we talk about leadership and sin. Can we, can we have a discussion out there about that? Because some of us, the way we carry on, you'd think we, we were like already perfected. Oh, well, I'm not having an affair and I'm not, I'm not swindling my company. Yeah, but there's sins of anxiety. Get excused in personality. Sins of dominance to get excused. No, I'm prophetic. No, you're rude. Um, all these kinds of things. Self-consciousness. So how do I lead people but I'm aware of my own sin? This... And, and the paralysis of analysis. If you're too sensitive on some of these things, you'll never lead anybody. Because if you're waiting until you're perfect to lead, you'll never lead. Because you're never going to be perfect. And then this unnecessary, I've covered it already, unnecessary having to defend the right to lead. That's strong in, in self-possessed, rich, Western, Grecian-based worldview cultures. The right to lead. Um, I tell our white spoiled congregation that the highway, the, the you know, apartheid's dead, but economic apartheid's alive and well. The highway is the great divider, and the people on the other side of the highway where we live, um, those pastors don't preach sermons on you must serve. They don't have to have little seminars on how to stir up volunteerism. <laughs> They don't have to preach, you know, die, light, you know, put yourself on the altar and get nailed to the cross and lay your life down. Because they're doing that. They're serving white people the whole week. It's amazing how we in the white section have to defend the right to lead. We've got to show, we've got to do scriptures, we've got to have talks like this. Um, and I'm only doing this, I'm doing this for a couple of reasons in this church, but I'm also doing it because this is a problem throughout the world, the Western world. And then lastly, is what I call unnecessary overcorrection. See, the answer to abuse is not non-use, it's correct use. So, if I was a woman, I'd probably be a feminist. So I was born black in 1962, I would have been in the bush fighting the war. That's just how I am. I'm a cause-driven kind of a soul. 
there are, there's some good reasons why women should be feminist, given the, the shocking way men have... Feminism exists because men have failed. Probably good if some of you girls stopped nodding so viciously. Um, but the overcorrection is not... The correction is not emasculate men now. The answer is not some kind of leaderlessness because we're afraid. I mean, I mean, the overcorrection. This wasn't that the substance of the of the of the inquiry in the Seven Eleven or Seven Seven. People dying in the subway because health and safety. I was going to say health and racket because it's a racket. Health and safety regulations prevented the firemen going down because of smoke. Well, aren't you a fireman because you want to be in the smoke? Give them a breathing apparatus. It's incredible how, how even Camilla wrote the other day about the, the, the ridiculousness of political correctness. And there's so much overcorrection. A, a deputy head filling in in Wales two weeks ago had a six-year-old on a, on, a, on a playground who wouldn't come in they all went in for the, for the lessons. The bell rang. There's a pedophile lurking, a known pedophile lurking in the, out in the road that week. This kid refused to come in, so she grabbed the kid on the one, one arm and the other teacher grabbed the other arm. They just lifted him a few inches off the ground and carried him into, into the school, and she got fired. Now, what's that an overcorrection from? Abuse of children. See, all overcorrections are not helpful. So the prosperity movement, which was completely unhelpful, lied to us that life would be happy and you'd never have a problem. Lay your hands on the Volkswagen, have faith, and it'll turn into a Rolls Royce. Just claim it, name it, frame it. Glory to God. So, so there's an overcorrection to that. And now we've got to tell the parts of the church, hey, now God is concerned about your money. There is a thing called sowing and reaping. Get people saying, well, you know, I tithe and it doesn't work. I've got a flat tire the other day. What, is an angel supposed to dive between the sharp object and your tire just because you're a tither? It's stupid. So we've got to watch for overcorrection. And so I've got three friends who left the church in South Africa, which was very, which is a brutal church. It's known as it. You get brutalized there. The only way, you, as a leader, you, you, can, you can live there is to get planted out. And then if you succeed, they claim you. And I pointed that out publicly, which was quite a lot of fun. With, all the characters sitting there in front of me. <laughs> I love that moment. So the only way to get out of this church is to get planted out. It's called a splant. The split in the plant is a splant. If you get planted out, and all those three boys, when I say boys, it's because I've known them since they were varsity kids. They were, I'm like a father. They tell me, you're a father to us. The tears, and they introduce me. All those guys said, hey, you know, you're not in... And they all jumped in. Lock, stock, and barrel onto the new hybrid grace message, which is really just about justification. It's very narrow bandwidth grace doctrine. They're all jumped in, and I said, you know what? I don't think you really have a theological co- conviction around grace. You are just in reaction to, and I filled in the blank, the guy who they felt brutalized them. It's amazing. It's very subtle. We're all after life preservation. And it's amazing how we'll move the goalpost, and then we wake up one day and we realize... Wow, this theology, this philosophy on leadership is so completely devoid of anything valuable. How did we get here? Well, we're continually overcorrected. And of course, the flesh is drawing us, the devil's drawing us, culture's reinforcing it, and we end up in a place we never intended to be, and there's no leadership. 
Maybe this is just a problem where we live. I don't know if it's useful. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, Steph. Steph's paid to say, Steph's here to say, that's good, Pete. You know, just to work the crowd a bit for me. Normally he's in the car park, revving the car, keeping the engine going, so he can dash out the side door. So for me, the problem is not with, is leadership legitimate? Do the test. Try the leaderlessness test in your family. Try it in your, in your workplace. And both will fail. And please don't ask me to implement a failed methodology in the local church just because I have to have you present. You see, if you've got a funny idea, you're working for uh, Apple. Sorry. Um, if you're working for Apple and you've got a funny idea, what do they do? They just fire you. You've got a funny idea in the local church. What do we do? We put up with you. Why? Well, we can't fire you because we're brothers. I can't even invoice you. So I don't, I don't even know whether you're giving what you should be giving. I've got to be careful. I can't push the envelope because you'll vote with your feet and you'll go away. And isn't he a horrible guy? And isn't he controlling? And he's putting stuff on us. It's perfect, perfect, perfect. Subterfuge. The problem. I don't think the problem is legitimacy. Problems with the deployment of the leadership, it's the tone of the leadership, it's the heart of the essence, it's the nature of the leadership that is the issue. So you've got to begin on a theological, don't base your stuff on philosophy, base it on theology. What's the point of departure? Theology. Is there the- theology that calls for frail humans to lead other frail humans? It's all over. Can't miss it. If you want to dispense with leadership, then you've got to do severe damage to the text. If you want to uh, dispense with, with sanctification, you want to preach instant sanctification, you want to preach perfectionism, you've got to do great damage to the text. You've got to remove all kinds of things. I mean, why would you put stuff on and put stuff off? And why would you, you know, why would you fight the devil? And why would you renew your mind? And why would you reckon yourself dead if you really were fine? You've got to do severe damage to the text. Give me a th- theology. Don't give me your philosophy. Not yours. Yours. Don't give me theology, philosophy. Don't give me a tinkering or some book you read or some blog that made some broken expert or something they tried in the Philippines. No, no, no. Give me something that's based on theology and then we'll work from there. And you'll find there's nothing wrong with leadership. In fact, the universe only exists because of leadership. God is leading the universe. Jesus, the head of the church, is leading the church through under shepherds, through leaders. The family won't go anywhere unless it's led. You've only got where you've got because someone led you there. Now is not the time to get self-conscious about leadership, to get nervous about leadership, to lose your courage. Now is the time because leaders will take us into our next inheritance. It's not going to happen. It's not going to come out of a green vapor. It's not going to be ushered in in the holy key of G while we manage the mood. No, no, no. No, we're going to lead us ourselves into, into the place. Moses led the children of Israel. Joshua led them. David led them. Paul's leading them. That's why, that's why they're leaders. Gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints. It's just a metaphor for lead the saints. Into what? Into the fullness that God has for them. Without leadership, you're going nowhere in a hurry. And I want to completely discount, disrespect, disregard, and poo-poo and laugh at any stupid theology that says you don't need leadership. Does, this, does that make that clear? I mean, really, it's just, you have to be, how can you be so dumb and still breathe? It's just stupid, okay? So having 
neatly and gently and kindly and pastorally dispensed with that opposition. Let me move on. So the problem for me is not legitimacy. The problem, I said, is the deployment of that gift. Um, the, the, the problem is the tone of that gift, the heart of that gift, the goal of that gift. So I want to go through some of the some, some things that will help us with this, and then we'll look at some scripture. So all the teachers are going, finally, the Bible. <laughs> well, I have been working around the Bible. I just haven't given you the verses. All right. However, let's look first of all, well, the tone of this leadership. The tone. What's the tone? It has to be, if you're looking at Scripture, if you're looking uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the tone has to be fatherly. And this is the problem. See, we never pray. Jesus didn't say, pray like this. Our uncle who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. No, our father who art in heaven. And so we bring all our pathologies that surround that word and we, we reflect those and we deflect those and we we project them onto God. So some of us can't access grace, even the people that are so-called grace people. Hmm. A lady in Australia, um, you know, Tony, Tony Rainbow in Australia, his brother was an elder with him, and they had like a stories of grace, a testimony time, and a lady got up and she said, started crying, and she said, oh, I just want to say, God is so kind to me, and I feel his arms around me, and I hear his whisper, and I feel his cheek on my face, and the smell of his aftershave, and I feel his embrace, and I feel his love, and he rocks me to sleep, and he stills my anxious heart, because you go on like this. She's crying, people are crying, and all the people with pastoral gifts are weeping, and you know how it goes. So now, he's an Aussie. He gets up, he takes the mic, and he goes, oh, I don't know. When God talks to me, I hear him say, oi, cut that out. You see, some of us are wired to hear God continually speaking kindly to us, and we never hear him rebuke us. Some of us hear him rebuke us, and we never hear him speak kindly to us. What is the problem? Well, I don't be Freudian, but I did study psychology at varsity. I want to suggest that perhaps part of our problem is we've got unredeemed father wounds, and so we project it onto God. Because some fathers needed a good tight slap. They let the kids get away with murder. I see some, maybe because I'm becoming an old fart, you know. Maybe, but I, I see some, some young fathers and I think, you know, I know that it's blessing you, but your child climbing my curtains is not really blessing me. You know, can we wrap him in it and remove him? You know, you know I dispose of bodies, you know, have a spade in my car. You know, it's incredible how, how they never... Uh, seem to discipline their children. And then there are other kids who completely just uh, caved in on themselves like just a broken woundedness because there's this regimented legalism and this harsh, I want to say Germanic, but then all the people with Germanic background will be offended, but that you're, that's why you're offended. Um, it's this kind of harsh thing where, where the kids aren't allowed to, to, to have an opinion. You know? We taught our kids, you can disagree with us, but do it politely. So even now, they boys in their 20s and Sarah's 16, when they come to me and they say, Dad, I don't want to be rude, then I know, oh, this is code for, here it comes. And I, I mean, I've set up this dialogue, so I go, yeah, go for it. And then they tell me something different. My father, on the other hand, completely doesn't understand our parenting style, and he thinks that them having an opinion is just rude, you know. Um, so, so, so those of us who are leaders, the Bible's asking you to be a father, well, where does it, where does it ask you to do that? Well, it says, 
it says, Paul says, we were like a father. We were like a mother with you. This is nurturing, loving. In fact, the, the, the idea in the Greek is as a hen gathers a chicken. So we, we gathered. There's this nursing, loving, kind, fatherly thing. But it's not all kisses and hugs. I teach our elders and our deacons, not every encounter with someone must end in a hug and a kiss. And if you're wide, that everything must, because you, you're a peace you're a peacekeeper, not a peacemaker, and you, you want anything to, you, know, you calm it all down, you overcompromise, you're not going to like that. Because some, some people should be told to, please, can you go and take a checkbook with you? This is not peace at all costs. We're afraid of conflict. Some of us won't confront people because we're afraid. Well, why are we like that? Because we haven't redeemed, we haven't brought all our childhood stuff through the grid of the Word of God. We haven't brought it through the cross, and so we're nervous. We, and then the others of us who over-respond, so I'm writing a, a book. I think I'm going to call it, probably going to call it um, Shove the Ice Cream Up His Nose. It's a story. It's about administering the emotional component of leadership. And um, I was very blessed RT. Um, I wrote, wrote the forward. And uh, my friend Davis and I, we were joking. We were going to write a leadership book. And we were going to ask RT to write a 400-page forward. <laughs> and then Davis and I would get the money. I thought, that's a good deal. Davis's idea, I want you to know that. Uh, I thought it was a good one. And um, in this book, I tell a story of, of this pastor, because I've asked pastors for their stories, and I've denuded all the geography and the names so no one, you know, protect innocent people involved. <laughs> and uh, so this guy tells a story painfully that he took his little children to a beachside resort in his town, and he bought them little twirly whirly ice creams, and a church member came and said, um, Ah, so you're eating our tithes, are you? So then I quote that story, and I say, full stop, I would have shoved the ice cream up his nose. Full stop. Too bad they don't come in peri peri flavors. So that's, that's going to be my book, probably, the title. Something provocative. It's better than administering the emotional component of leadership. It's just not very good. It doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I can see the picture of a guy with ice cream up his nose, and you know, it'd be good. I'm sure you'd like to buy it uh, for this conference price of 122 pounds, 50, and I'll sign it. Um, picture of Artie in as well. Um, anyway, the, my, what's my point? My point is this, that in that book I'm saying, you know, some of the problems in the local church have nothing to do with the devil at all. The devil, like a mother in law. How many of you are mothers-in-law here? devil, like a mother-in-law, gets blamed for a lot of stuff. Now, I know some mother-in-law, you think they come from a hot place. I, you know, I, I can get that. But the devil gets blamed for a lot of stuff. And, you know, we make our own problems as leaders. And to, we, have to be a, we have to be so... Um, the finesse level around managing people has to be so finely tuned because here are two brothers here, they both look naked in this freezing cold summer, but they're completely different people. And if you, if you treat him like you would him, it's not going to work for him. It's amazing the level of finesse I have to operate at. I'm expected to. And, and the people in the pew can be completely boorish and completely ignoramus. And I have to be the specialist and they pay me to be that. The father heart has to be learned. It's not an automatic science for many of us. You have to learn it, depending on your background. If your father was licentious in his upbringing of you, you've got to learn the discipline of God. If your father was completely controlling and, and you couldn't even breathe and have an opinion, you have to learn the grace of God. So uh, it's a tricky thing. So we project all the stuff. What am I saying? I'm saying you're dangerous as a leader if you aren't constantly going to the cross with your stuff. South Africa, we say stuff with an S. These are my stuffs. It means these are my things. 
take your stuff, take your stuff to the cross. So in the, in the 70s and 80s, I remember, this might not mean anything to you, but I've been saved forever. <laughs> you think I'd be better by now, a glow in the dark with a Chernobyl anointing. But I remember like in the 80s, blokes wrote books like um, Friendship with God. And they kind of dispensed with this devotional quiet time. It's, it's a law. It's legalism. Don't read your Bible. You don't have to. Just commune with God and write down. Journaling kind of happened. Write down what stuff. Yeah, that's, that's good. But in the charismatic world, we kind of poopard. The devotional quiet time thing is something that Baptists do and Methodists do in shame. Poor Anglicans have none again. If they say it, can never go with it. You know, that's the kind of mindset. I'm finding that the most important tool in your arsenal is your devotional life, you know. I, I'm useless without it. You have to, I have to get to the text. I've got to let the text skewer me to the polystyrene of truth, like that biology specimen. Because we don't want the word to, to we, the obstacles that we have to the word are legendary. I have complete, completely, I think, um, realistic view of the power of preaching. Really, I mean, I preach for an hour, they'll hear half of it and they'll apply a third of it. People with PhDs, intelligent men and women, completely distracted by a moth in the auditorium. Yeah? And I'm going, do you see the text? No, I see the moth there. The opposition to the Word of God is enormous. And if I'm going to actually, and, and you're going to, if you're a woman, obviously, lead in the motherly way, <laughs> and it's not gender specific, you know what I mean, then I'm going to have to actually get the Pete stuff out of me. My biggest opposition is me. No one, no one worse than me. I mean, the devil can't stop me like I can. Spurgeon said we carry our worst enemies within us. You, you know exactly how to stop yourself. The devil can't do that. But it's overblown spiritual warfare theology. You know, pump extra virgin, extra pressed olive oil from the Holy Land, bought from some nice Arab man in the old quarter, spray it around and the devil will run, you know. Quote some verses. No, no, no. no. This is not a little... The spiritual warfare God wants me to get involved in is to, is to really, and the devil's there, and we need to bind and loosen. I, you know, maybe a little bit of oil now and again if you're sick, you know. Not for your stomach's sake, that's the other stuff. Just lay hands and anoint with oil. But the spiritual warfare, the, the most dangerous terrain where this warfare must take place is in peat. Yeah? Not out there. Like some lunatic who hired a Boeing to fly over New York, uh, over, over L.A., to do spiritual warfare in the spirit realm. I said, waste of petrol. You're giving that to me. Stupid, man. The war's not up there. It's here, between the ears. And the devil wants to move you from security to insecurity. He can get us to fight one another. He can get us to, to overcompensate. He can get us to misunderstand one another. He wants to move me from security to insecurity. That is his modus operandi. And he's doing it with you right now. He does it with leaders. He does it with Christians. We're an insecure lot. If we saw the hand of Satan working on our flesh, we would probably not let our flesh make us daughters of the devil and sons of Satan. Emissaries, vessels, handmaidens, hand sons of the devil. We would actually think twice. We probably wouldn't send that email. One guy years ago said to me, I've been fighting with you in my head. I said, keep it in your head. No, seriously. In the name of dumping, Ed, I must just share I've got something with you, something against you. I dump it on him, probably if you're old Pentecostal, so I can take communion. No, so, Ed, I'm sorry, I just wanted to know that uh, five years ago I thought you jerk, still think that, but I just wanted you to forgive me for thinking that. He thought I thought, he thought I thought he was a lovely guy, which I do think. 
Till I got the email. No, you didn't know email. Dumping. This is dumping in the name of clearing the air. Some stuff should never see the light of day. I don't know whether it's wise to go to your wife and say, darling, I'm attracted by woman X in the church. I think you should go and bash your head against the wall first, and then go to one of the brothers who can, you can hold your head underwater. <laughs> so they can't hear you scream. Then the poor girl, so you feel, oh, you feel, you've, just, you've lifted, you feel this burden's lifted, and the poor girl's lying awake in bed, and I'm thinking all kinds of things. And the next time he sees, she sees her in the, in, the, in the shopping mall, she wants to run her over with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the shopping cart, and this poor girl, the other victim, is not even aware of any of this. So, now I have a gift of curiosity, spiritual gift. So I said to him, well, tell me why you're fighting with me in your head. He said, well, because you think that all of us can be leaders. And you want us to, I thought, wow, well, that's wonderful. I'm succeeding. Now that man is married, he has, trip, he has twins and a couple of singles. He has a very demanding job. And I actually want to see him one day and take him back to that conversation. Because he wasted the emotional moment in my life, made me worry about a thing which I'm telling this story. It's a useful story. So God's redeeming everything. But it's stupid to never see the light of day. Some of our lack of fatherliness and lack of motherliness has to do with uncrucified flesh. And it's also background. We're products of our background. Not being Freudian, but we really are products of our background. Which is why I need, if you think of your life being a river, your family, all the, they're all, my, my wife's family were from Lancashire and they were all rum runners. They really were. It makes sense, so you know, Jenna. This river runs through our family, runs through my life. And I'm now here. I get born again. What am I doing in the sanctification process? I'm lifting up the filter of God's Word. And so good stuff coming from your unsaved parents. Good work ethic. Their yes was a yes, their no was a no. That's not from the devil. That's good stuff. It's common grace. Lift up the filter. And all the. And so from now on, any example, the way the HB boys deal with women is completely different because it's now filtered through the Word of God. So the Word of God wants to filter out all our sense of inadequacy, all our sense of abandonment, our fear of abandonment, our fear of authority, our fear of confrontation. The Word wants to do that work in us. What are you saying? I'm saying the people in whom the gospel should be working the most is us. Because there's unnecessary human carnage and collateral that makes me mad. And I watch some of the fallouts and some, see my friends and the dramas in churches and I'm angry because it's all unnecessary. Because a lot of it's just semantics and ph- ph- philosophic nonsense and tinkering when we could just, in the words of Rodney King, get along. Rodney King is that guy who got beaten up by the Los Angeles police. He's not, no one important. He's a victim of police brutality. So I've got to, I've got to take my... So, so when I want to respond in a non-fatherly way, and you know non-fatherly is wussing out and not dealing with an issue? That's, that's a non-fatherly way. Fatherly way isn't always, oh, I want to confront you on that. In fact, maybe the insistence to confront him might be the non-fatherly way you need to unlearn. See how nuanced this thing is? Yeah, it's requires finesse. This is not a place for a bull in a china shop. It's really difficult to lead. Really difficult. Can't fire anybody, can't invoice anybody. Working with volunteers. We've got so many opinions. I'm feeling depressed now when I go home. (laughs) (laughs) So the tone is fatherly. What am I saying? Your devotional life 
will help you get there. And if you had a good father who didn't wuss out or over, over-parent you, then thanks be to God. That's the kindest, kindest gr- grace gift. Piper says that the highest form of grace is to be born, born into a family that loves God and is kind, and you didn't even deserve that. Some of us have got more work to do because of our background. I can think I'm behaving spiritually, but really I'm behaving out of insecurity, and sometimes it's hard to detect the difference. So that, that's the tone. Okay, well, let's just get to the bigger thing now. The, what's the goal? Why are we doing this? I, I don't know whether I'm supposed to have a clipboard with a white jacket on and, and, and uh, supervise and audit your morality. You know, they say in, in Afrikaans, chips, chips, you could be domini, which means chips, chips. No, it means careful, careful, here comes the pastor. That spirit is very strong in, in, in most churches. You know, I walk into a conversation, the guys go, oh, guys. And I know some of them are cleaning up the conversation. And I say, hey, but Jesus was here before, before me, and he's way more important than me. And I'm really not interested. That sense of, well, well you know, I know it's wise for a girl who wants to marry a boy to, to check with the fathers in the house whether this boy is worth marrying. I might have told the story. I tell our single girls, what is this modern preoccupation with a butt? Oh, he's got a cute butt. A butt we can surgically, surgically alter on demand. Tell us what you want. We can, we can produce one. But a spine I can't produce. And if you marry a bloke without a spine, you'll produce spineless boys. You don't want that. Not that boy. You, you want to look for boys who, who are in the prayer meeting, who love Jesus. Who, who are not sleeping in their Star Wars pajamas at mommy's house at 30, getting their sandwiches made. And have, no one knows like that, but anyway, I've just said it. Um, no, no, I want to, I, I say to Sarah, Sarah, marry someone who's worthy of our genes. Now, that might sound arrogant, because you might think, well, you know, your genes aren't as good as you think they are. Well, yeah, fair enough, but they're my genes, huh? I, I want someone compelling for Sarah. Sarah's a strong girl. See, I don't subscribe to a misogynist, worldview of women in the church, that a woman must be the fourth child in the home. Uh, I'm certainly not into Jezebel. But there is no Jezebel unless there's an Ahab wuss. No, no, no. Uh, we, we don't just applaud our girls' femininity. We applaud their brains because we don't want dumb bimbos to define their value about how they look to men. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm affirming Sarah's mind and her leadership capacity. And boy, am I praying hard that she... Find a boy that will lead her and love her and love God. It's hard work. What's the point? The point is, the goal of this is not to be moral policemen, to manage people's morality. Where you can live, where you can't live, what car you can buy, what car you can't buy, how many beers you can drink, who you can marry, who you can't marry. There's wisdom. Girl's an idiot to never consult the fathers about her potential choice. What do you think about that guy? Well, I don't, yeah. You know. You know, I do subscribe to, I mean, a country in Western music is going to be in little booths in hell. That's what's going to make hell, hell. You can be locked in the booth and they're going to sing about country and Western for eternity. But there's one country and Western song, um, Coward of the County, that, that uh, gray head guy, Rogers, wasn't it? Kenny Rogers sang. Thank you. It was a trick question. And, um, he sang uh, Coward of the County, and there's one line, because this, this uh, Tommy, Tommy, he mows down the Gatlin boys, because they, they mock him. He kills him in a bar, he locks the door, and he kills them all. And then it says, because um, 
the line goes like this. Oh, they, they, I think they messed with Becky, the woman he wanted. And, and it goes like this. There's someone for everyone, and Tommy's love was Becky. And I tell my elders that. But don't project your taste onto that girl. Just ask her, does he love Jesus? Because if he's a Hindu, you're going to have a problem with your father-in-law. Seriously. He must be a child of God. God must be his father, where he's going to struggle. Must be a contributor. Can't be a low-life, sponge, oxygen thief, parasite. You know, it's not going to bless you. You're going to disrespect him in your 40s when you're bringing up a fifth child and it's your husband. No, no, no. Does he contribute to his world? Is he, a, is he, is he present? Is he, is he there and present? That's great. So, so there's wisdom. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians and there's a man sleeping with his father's wife, stepmother, he doesn't write to the elders and say, please eject the brother. He rebukes the elder because it sounds like they're complicit in this because he actually accuses the leadership of arrogance. Were they perhaps a bit like us? Were they proud of their tolerance, perhaps? Why would he choose the word arrogance? Why, why didn't he rebuke them for their oversight or their lack of courage? Arrogance is a whole different category. I think they were complicit in it because they were tolerant. It's most modern of us. Tolerant. So Paul writes to the whole church, throw him out. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He writes in the second letter, bring the boy back. He's repentant because the goal is restitution, not, not eternal punishment. He writes 1 Corinthians 13. It's not a love poem to be read at your wedding. If it was, your wedding's still valid. You're still married. It's fine. 1 Corinthians 13 is rebuke. This is the church that said, our apostle can beat up your apostle. Our guru can outguru your guru. I'm, I'm, of, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of, I'm of Peter. I'm of Nick. I'm of Ant. I'm of Daddy Daniel. And then the real spiritual one, I'm of Jesus. He says, he, says, he, say, he rebukes her. What does he say? He says, hey, love is patient. Love is kind. They're dragging each other into court. They're suing each other. They, 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 they're having a, a communion that looks nothing like the Lord's table. Your meetings you're doing cause more harm than good, he says. This is not the communion you're having. You're self-indulgent even at the table. You're shocking. You use, you've got spiritual gifts flowing. You're so prophetic that you use them to self-promote. There's chaos in the, spirit, in, in the spiritual gift exercise. And so you've got to say, no, slow down. Let's three at a time. Calm down. Let's have some order here. Chaos in the, in the Corinthian church. You know why? They forgot the big picture. The big picture, the big goal of leadership is simply this a bride prepared, not moral management of people. And if that's your view of leadership, because that's where you come from, it has to go through the grid, a sanctifying, redeeming grid of the Word of God, because that's not the goal. The goal is a bride prepared. It's a noble thing. And we've got to continually look and appeal to this nobility. Because, sorry, what is your name again? Andy, do you mind if I pick on you? Well, no, that's easy. I know Ed. I've got lots of abuse here. Yeah. You know, when it's the bride of Christ, ooh, it's a lovely spiritual image, but it's disembodied. When it's Ed, oh, man, I've got to love Ed. Oh, so hard. Ed, you know, Ed is, uh, Ed, uh, but it's the bride. Oh, I love the bride of Christ. So long as it's up there in a nebulous thing, it's, it's easy. But
But when it's earth and a human, that's what makes it hard. This is why we've got to continually appeal to the greater picture and overlook the brother. Friday night rehearsal of a wedding. The woman looks terrible. Bet you Kate, I'm sure they had a rehearsal. The only thing they didn't rehearse was Mrs. Williams, is it? Cutting the eyebrows of her husband. If, if, if uh, that wasn't rehearsed, but everything else was rehearsed. Friday night, Friday night when, 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 when we have a rehearsal, whenever, the girl looks haggard. Her hair looks like an oil project. She hasn't got a makeup on. She looks terrible. She, cause she's stressed out because when you get married, demons, marriage demons from hell come. Ooh, and they attach themselves to normally beautiful, wonderful mothers and mothers-in-law. And they have earth-shattering arguments about, about universal shaking issues like should there be salmon, baby pink, dusty pink serviette? Fallout over who, who's getting invited, who's not getting invited, who's paying for this, who's not paying for this. We've got more say, you've got less say. It's amazing. And the reason why marriages, weddings are often absolute chaos is because the men aren't leading the dads and the husbands-to-be. It's her day, no rubbish. It's your day. Give some leadership. So the, the father is, 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 is concerned. Who is this punk anyway? Who is this guy she's married? She just brought him back from London after her gap year. Gap year, I'll give him a gap year. Who is this guy? Is he worthy of our genes? We don't even know he is. His father could be Jack the Ripper. Who is this guy? He's, even, he's, pro- he's not even properly employed. He's living at home and he's coming out of his Star Wars pajamas. In fact, he's taking those Star Wars pajamas on honeymoon. Who is this guy? He's in his 40s to 50s, so he's not schooled in emotion, so he doesn't know how to deal with this. He's got all this conflict. The wife's going. He's, he's seeing his bank balance go. He's, he can't cope. His darling's going. Butterfly kisses notwithstanding in the background. The emotional tornado he's walking as he practices. I've actually banned unnecessary personnel in my rehearsals. I've actually said to them quite Categorically. Let me tell you, this is my rehearsal. I, used to, I made the mistake thinking it was their rehearsal, and it was just chaos. So I've run it like a little tin god. Now, you tell me what you want, the couple, and we'll do that. It's your wedding. We'll do that. Where do you want to stand? you want to sit? you want to look? And now got, the bridesmaids have got a lot to say, and the grooms. It's their wedding. Okay, I know you've been a bridesmaid five times, and you're getting irritated. Just wait. Okay? So that's Friday night, Saturday. Those doors open. This woman of unparalleled beauty, an apparition of glory, comes gliding down the aisle. It's like an anointing. I've never seen an ugly bride, have you? Never. I've never. done hundreds of weddings, it feels like. Never. It's like an anointing because it's, it's a pictorial representation of Christ in the church. Anybody. It takes no gift to point out the Friday night pathologies in the local church. One guy said to me, I've got a problem with the church. I said, no, 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 no. Let me go first. He's like, he's like, you know, one guy sends me an email. It, it's called Snubbed in the Mall. He sends me an email, Snubbed in the Mall. Long story, but this guy left the church, and, he, and with him in the mall was an older guy who had behaved badly, and of course, you know, most behavioral problems, I just desire myself, I'm going to lose. That's it. Not enough martyrdom way, but I, I'm never going to win. Never. There's a thousand people, there's a thousand opinions. It's the title. Part of being crucified with Christ, get over it, Pete, or change your job, do something easy, like brain surgery. So, so there's this guy walking. One of our young elders got his wife, got his baby. They're sleep deprived. And then this guy, it's an un, that's how you want to kind of tie your loose ends. 
Because you've got to see them in Sainsbury. You want to kind of tie your relational loose ends, if you can. And as far as it's possible, live at peace with others, the Bible says. So, but that, so there's no loose end tied here. So he, they see this guy, this guy sees them, and this guy with the, with the, with the unresolved bloke feels snubbed by this elder and his wife. So I get this email. So I don't hit reply. Well, I do, but then I take his subject out and I write there, hassled in the office. Dear blah, blah, blah. Thanks for email. But I just don't know why he sent it to me. You know the deal. When did I become the complaints department? You would say you're spiritual. You know Matthew 18. So surely you spoke to him right there and then. Why are you including me in something I've not... I wasn't even there. I can't even read the body language. I don't even know if they even saw you. I had a friend in Marisburg, pastor, colored guy. Not important, but in the, those days, it was the, the racial tension didn't help. And, and he complained to me. I read the fraternal there because another pastor, a white guy across the road, didn't greet him. I said to this guy, hey, bud, did, was he wearing his glasses? Does he wear glasses? Of course he wears glasses. Didn't you know that about your brother? He probably didn't see you. Ah, so he's not a racist. No, he's probably just a blind bat. The difference. Hassled in the office. It's amazing how, how it takes no gift to point out the problems in the church. Now, you want to be a lead elder. It's a lonely existence. You, you spend most of your time trying to double-guess your mo- motivations. Forget about dealing with your own sin and your own issues. It's, it's, how did I come across? And you've got sensitive wife like I have. And I've been preaching for years. I don't even look at Jan. It's just not helpful. She's going... Okay, I used to say my eyes fall in the fifth row, so she must sit in the fifth row. Then I'll see the front row. It's a terrible thing. Big picture, big picture, and everyone's got their little issue. They're all, they're all coming with their thing. They want to join the church, and they, they, they say, um, I want to join your church. God sent me. I used to believe that when I was a young, stupid 26-year-old pastor took over a church. I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe it. I don't know whether the devil brought them. I'm not cynical. I'm just jaded. <laughs> in a nice godly way, low case Joe. God's brought me here. I've got a gift. Have you? I've got an idea. What's that? Well, lay your gift at the altar. Join everybody else, and then we'll see. Well, you're controlling, because there's some guy on the road who'll take the guy's gift, because he's, he's into, he's got a hireling for sale, hireling for hire sign in his, in his front window. It's chronic, and they, they just don't see the big picture. They just see their little ministry, their little thing, their little injustice, how they were treated, how they weren't met, how they weren't loved, how they weren't phoned, blah, 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 blah. And can we just for once say the goal of leadership is not the management of morality, it's preparing a bride for the return of Jesus. You could actually get Pentecostal and shout hallelujah right there. So what is the means, the third point quickly, the means of leadership, the, the tone is fatherly, the goal is a bride prepared. Let me just say, it's not, it's not my job. I always say, you know, in South Africa, do you have them here? We have car guards. Car guards are guys who are generally drunk on drugs or they've lost the plot and they stand there and they blow in the breeze. We've got a, a, a guy who's been living under a bush in our road for 25 years. I kid you not, Tommy. And Tommy, when Tommy's drunk, he's like a, he's like a, a confused chameleon. He doesn't know where to put his legs, so he'll walk like this. And then you watch him, and you think, oh, God, get the leg down. And, and, and so one day he's walking like this, and my neighbor says to him, Tommy, 
Yes, you're drunk. No, Mania, it's best in Afrikaans. No, sir, the wind is very strong. <laughs> uh, we love Tommy. Why am I telling you that about Tommy? It's a good story, but where was it going? Yeah? Cargoes, cargoes. I could, you know, really, seriously, I don't have to do this job. I'm sure I'd be a great car guard. You know what I mean? One car guard, uh, I remember Glenda Davis saying to me, she went to, the, to, to a, a, a little cafe, a little tea room, whatever you call, cafe, little shop, convenience store, and um, a car guard guy plonked a bag of money on the counter. And she looked at it and she said, sorry, a bit of interest, how much do you make a month? So I said, oh, about seven grand. You know, there's low overheads. So it's not a bad salary for nothing. It's tax-free. Like it's all in coins, so you're going to find someone who's wanting to... Wants to get. This, is, this job we're doing as elders, those of us who, who get, to get paid for the pain, I mean paid to do it, um, this is not even about us. I go to some churches, they're all about the guys leading the church. Family business, Madagascar. You, you teach them priority of leadership and, and, and co-governance and fatherly tone, and, and man, they... they Yes, and they agree, and then you, you sneak back and you discover that the, 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 there, they call him assistant pastor, sitting in the back row and the wife's leading the church. Why? It's family business, protecting the bottom line. That's not, and there are all kinds of permutations of that. We're, a, we're, we're preparing a bride. Now, the means, the means of this leadership, how do we, how we express this? Well, this is what makes this job quite frustrating because we have very innocuous and very feeble-like weapons, or that's not a good word, instruments. And they are instruments of appeal. I urge you, brothers, Paul says, I appeal to you by the, and then when he really wants to get serious, by the mercies of God, not I appeal to you by the, you know, the general sensibilities of Asia Minor. I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you offer your bodies a living sacrifice. I beseech you, brothers and sisters. That's all we got. That's what makes this job so difficult. Those, that's the means. Appeal. Example. Throughout the text, Paul is saying, be an example in life and doctrine. Watch your doctrine and your life closely. Watch your marriage closely. Watch your mindset closely. Deal with your interiors closely. Deal with your respectable sins carefully. Pay attention. Your example is the powerful thing. The other weapons or the other means are rebuke. Now, this is a whole new zone. I'm not sure about the sensibility, sensitivities in England, but I generally get more flack when I come to Europe than when I go anywhere else. Um, people don't like it if you're half-passionate and you have, an, have a convicting or convincing argument here and there. Uh, but rebuke. Paul says, I'm, Titus, I'm leaving you in Crete. I want you to put things in order. And what does he give him? He only gives him government, put elders in place. Discipling, rebuke. And rebuke sharply. Rebuke strongly, not, could I suggest that you perhaps do this? Like a charismatic group in South Africa who were holding a conference on, on counseling and one of our friends and his wife went and they were taught, this is how, so you don't just go to Ed and, and say, Ed, can I pray with you? You say, Ed, may I touch you with an affirming touch? Now that's weird for me, eh? May I touch you with an affirming touch? What, what is that? Overcorrection because it must be abusive touch. Um, I don't get that. Paul says, should I come with a whip? I have my rights. Oh, we don't even say that. We'll just say, well, the Lord's leading me on. We do not want to be led. 
We are a rebellious generation. No one rebukes us. You get a guy or a girl who's half cheeky and they're arrogant and they're this and they're that. The, the, the methods of deflection are enormous and we are so skilled at that. We have a plethora of defensive, reflective shields and we bounce the truth off and we say, oh, he's from that group or she's just like that or he's just like that or he doesn't understand. See, when I talk about controlling women, you know what I get back at me? You're misogynist and, you, and you, you're sexist. I get that. Seriously. Oh, when I talk about weak men and wussy men or dominant controlling men, the women love that, but they're so inconsistent. Rebuke, no one should say. Teaching. This is a means. Teaching, the pulpit, the teaching, the, the home group, if you're a home group leader. Um, the teaching of the Word of God, the washing of the Word of God. These metaphors aren't just... Um, I can't, I'm not, forget I'm not in Cape Town. I'm going to say tufalach. I can't always remember the English word. It shows you I've been with Afrikaners way too long. Um, coincident, yeah, incidental or coincidental or, or accidental. No, no, no. The washing of the word, the, the without wrinkle, the ironing of the word, the ironing out the wrinkles and the blemishes, and uh, it's some effort there. This teaching. So my boy sends me this email when I was traveling, and he found this letter written. Um, by a preacher named J. Graham Miller in the 70s. He says, my boy says he found it powerful, and that's how I want to read it to you. He goes like this. Mr. Preacher, preaching changed the face of Scotland. The only weapon John Knox had for the overthrow of popery, of tyranny, and of ignorance were the burning heart, the Bible, and the pulpit. He spoke for God. God has ordained these means for the reformation of nations, the reviving of churches, and the raising of preachers, the edifying of congregations, and the salvation of the lost. By the preaching of Ambrose in Milan, God spoke to Augustine. By the preaching of Savonarola, God spoke to Florence. By the preaching of Whitfield and Wesley, God spoke to Britain. By the preaching of hundreds of young men today, God will encourage his dispirited people, banish ignorance, plant faith in his word, and kindle the steady fires of revival in church and nation. A lost generation will be found and will be fed. This is the 70s, he asks. Where are these hundreds of young men? Ten of them are in theological colleges. They left MBI, whatever that is, in the graduating class of 1968. Others are wondering whether to join them. You are hesitating for a number of reasons. The preaching office is in disrepute. On all sides, you hear inhibiting talk about the problem of communication, the generation gap, the changing structures of the church, philosophical tinkering. These are rationalizations for an age which has lost its, pul- lost its pulpit power. Mr. Preacher, you belong to a dying race. And then he says, never, exclamation mark. Good preachers are disciplined men of the word. They have experienced its power in their own lives. They refuse to believe that God has changed his chief weapon for the saving of sinners, the maturing of Christians, and the renovation of society. All over the world, there are conscious Bible ministries, sorry, conspicuous Bible ministries today, but they are the exception. They need to become the rule. The younger churches are crying out for expository preachers. In the home churches, ex- exposition is a lost art. God promises no blessing on the clever preacher, and there is too much slovenly preaching. The preacher's gospel is the whole Bible with Christ at its center. He spends a lifetime in conscientious presentation of every facet of God's many-sided revelation. 
This taxes all his powers of mind and heart, but it proves satisfying, edifying, and revolutionary, and he is a man of prayer. Is the sickness of our church a reason for turning away from the charge to preach the word? Were Hosea, Jonah, Jeremiah deluded? When God says, preach, we preach. Nothing stops us. Nothing except ourselves. We assist Satan by our guilty silence. A Bible cottage can help to fashion preachers. It can ground them in in the Bible, read, marked, learned, and inwardly digested. It can school them in their use of the sword. It can lay a firm foundation for the latter years in a theological college. It can establish a lifelong pattern for the soul's fellowship with God. Few men are entering this ministry today. It is a bad omen for our future. There are reasons for this, but they are bad reasons. Mr. Preacher of the 1970s, if God is calling you to show yourself approved unto him, let nothing stand between you and his perfect will. One biblical ministry can produce a dozen preachers. The dozen can, in God's good time, produce a hundred. The preacher of the 90s, will you be that minister? Good word. The Bible, the word of God, is our means. It's all we got. So we've got to prize the word of God. And I know this is a house that does that. And so there's a wonderful role you play as, as leaders and home group leaders when someone sits in your home group and says, you know, and preaches too long. Well, I don't think he does really. Given the pressure of sin on the earth, given the demand of, of, of the kingdom of God, I'm not sure whether we're getting enough word. And so if you kind of acquiesce, and you know, some of us have learned listening skills, and you, you go like this, you know, tilt your head slightly, lean forward to denote interest, open your mouth slightly, open your eyes wider, and nod. Now, when you do that, for some people, that looks like acquiescence, like you're agreeing with them. So when they say, well, you know, and preaches too long, and I don't like your sermons, and you go, you're not being a good, good leader. You're, being, you, you're wussing out. You should say, excuse me, can you stop? I think you need the Word of God. See how we all, we want to close the gap between leaders and the elders. We want to all blow the trumpet. You know, Pete's traveling, and then a leader goes, so a disgruntled sheep says, Pete's traveling again, and then the leader goes. That's eloquent. What does that mean? It means the leader doesn't really believe in this traveling thing anyway. The devil's looking for a place to drive the wedge between leadership continually. We have to ask ourselves often, am I an emissary of Satan, like this thing said? 